Beef Watch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch podcast, we're going to be discussing an article from the July issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled, What to Expect from Alternatives to Corn Silage. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by one of the co-authors, Mary Janowski, who's a Nebraska Extension Beef Systems Specialist. Thanks for joining me today, Mary. Oh, I'm happy to be here to get to talk about this. Well, Mary, you've actually done quite a bit of research on this topic, and what I'm thinking of here is about small grain silage in particular, uh, looking at that as an alternative to corn. What are some things that producers might expect as they think about small grain silage? How does it compare to corn? What are some things to recognize and realize about the possibility of using this as a silage resource? Well, I think one of the, the bigger differences between small grain silages and corn silage is really that with corn silage, we typically have one decision point, right? We're really shooting for after black layer and getting the right moisture content, and that's when we go. And with that, we're, we're really looking at, you know, something that has between a 70 and even up to a 75% TDN, you know, 8 to 10 crude protein. It's fairly consistent. Now, when we talk about dress, drought stress corn, that's a little bit different cat. And we can talk about that in a different podcast. But in general, you know, you pretty much know what you're going to get out of corn silage. Probably the biggest variable is about how much protein you're going to have in it. And then a little bit of leeway on the TDN, mostly due to uh, how well you get it packed and uh, preserved. With the small grains, there's a lot more decision points in terms of harvesting potential, and they really affect not just the yield, but also the quality of of that feed resource. And so um, one of the first things that you have to ask yourself is, what is my goal? So you'll hear and you'll see in a lot of extension publications, they talk about harvesting the small cereals at boot. That's, you know, one of the earlier stages. It has a lower yield potential, but it's much greater in energy and protein. And so depending on your needs, that might make a lot of sense. So across our uh, past two years, we've been harvesting wheat, triticale, and cereal rye in the spring, looking at them at the boot stage. So that's basically before the head comes out, um, but you can see the head in the stem, it's close to the top leaf. At pollination, which is the heads are all out and then you actually see those yellow anthers out there. So it's pollinating. At milk, which is now that seed head is starting to fill. And if you take one of the kernels, you'll actually have a milky white substance come out of it uh, or at soft dough. So Yield increases as you let it mature. That makes sense to everybody. But how the quality is affected is probably something that I think we underestimate. So with boot, we're seeing about a 58 TDN, which compared to corn silage, you know, I told you it's 70 to 75. So it's it's lower. It's also a lot higher in protein, though. We're typically seeing something that's, you know, double what we would see in corn silage. So depending on your needs, that might actually be a benefit. We reduce our TDN and increase our yield going to pollination and yield almost doubles from boot to pollination. And the TDN content um, decreases only by about three percentage units. So we're getting around 55. Um, So that's not super high quality forage. It's like a medium quality hay, but that can fit a lot of diets. 
and the protein's fairly good. It's still fairly high. It's like 14, maybe down to to 12% crude protein. So again, I would say pollination, if you think of it like medium quality hay in terms of its feeding value, you're probably on target, maybe a bit more protein. And then we go to milk and milk, um, it's actually the lowest energy that you can have in this particular system because at milk, we're looking at something that's more like straw. (laughs) It's like a 50 TDN. It has more protein than that. It'll be like 12, um, but it's not very uh, high in energy. And then if you wait to soft dough, which some people do, um, you get a little bit of boost in energy because you start getting some starch in the grain or in the head. And we maybe get up to about a 52. So somewhere um, between straw and medium quality hay and the proteins about 10. So if you think about it, the way I see it is what is your goals? If you're looking for higher quality, um, you're going to harvest earlier and give up some yield. I kind of like pollination because it is uh, in my mind, uh, the best of, of both worlds in that I can get decent yields and um, get a decent quality forage. Uh, one of the other things that I think is really important is that we have not seen a difference in the energy or protein content between the winter wheat, the winter triticale, and the cereal rye. So unlike what most people would think. Cereal rye is not actually lower quality. However, we do see that cereal rye can hit stages earlier than say triticalia or wheat, especially in the early stages like boot pollination. So at the same time of harvest, like if I was to harvest them on the same day, the others would be less mature and thus they'd be higher quality. Uh, but if I hit them at the same stages, there's no difference. So I think that's something that's really interesting because I think our observation is just relative to harvesting around the same time, not at the same stages. Talk a little bit about thinking about getting silage, small grain silage put upright. And I know you've done some work with producers and actually did some field studies looking at different uh, producers, how they got their silage put up. Talk through with us some key things to know and understand about that. Well, I think anybody who's tried to put up small grain silages knows the challenges that come with that. One is that whatever stage you're shooting for, uh, things change quickly. And so if you wait for it to hit the stage and then you gear up, you're probably going to miss it. Uh, if it rains, you're probably going to miss it. I mean, on average, they, between those stages, we're looking at maybe a week. Um, so that's probably the first thing is that uh, you want to If you're shooting for a particular stage, when you see it in the stage before, just get ready and say, I'm going to harvest it. And by the time things work, (laughs) you actually hit the right stage. Uh, But the other big one is it's really, really difficult to get the moisture right. Probably the number one thing that we saw, we sampled 17 different producers, about 20 different silage harvests, and we had 40% of those samples that came back as being too wet when they were put up at harvest. So if we think about the moisture content, you know, they were, they were up in the seventies or higher. And so while you might not think that's such a bad thing because I mean, it might pack. Okay. What happens is you don't get the fermentation you're looking for. And so you don't preserve the feed as well. Um, We had 
a maximum of about 17 percentage units loss of TDN with that stuff that was put up wet. So if you think about that, I went from something that was, you know, maybe a 55 and now I'm down to as low or lower than straw. So when people talk about small grain silages and thinking about them being low quality, uh, one thing I would question is, are you getting it put up right? And in particular, are you getting the moisture right? So as we kind of looked at the wilting time people were using and whether or not they achieved the right moisture, because it is really difficult, right? It depends on the conditions. What's the humidity? How much wind do you have? How big is your windrow? All of those things, right, impact how long you need to wilt the forage to get it to the right moisture. But in general, with boot and pollination, people needed to wilt 14 to 24 hours uh, to, hit, to hit the right moisture. With milk and soft dough, it varied. It was less, typically, because the material does dry more um, as it matures. But we could be anywhere from eight to no. Uh, wilting needed. Sometimes uh, the soft dough seems like you can direct chop it and sometimes it's still too wet to direct chop. We didn't see any real differences between what when they harvested in terms of stage and whether they achieved their goal. There was stuff that was soft dough that was still way too wet. Um, so my point here is that I think one place that we got to pay attention to is how wet is it and it seems drier, I think, than it really is because when you have it in that windrow, the top dries out and the bottom is still soaking wet. So you kind of got to shoot for the average of the material, not look just what's on the top. You know, I think one of the other challenges is this is such a challenging dance from my perspective. And what I mean by that, weather conditions can drive so much uh, what's happening, you know, if you're wilting a crop, you know, if we have a a 95 degree day with a lot of wind, uh, we can dry things out really rapidly. And on the other side, if we have a pretty cool conditions and high humidity, it, it may just lay there and, and not hit the target. So I think that's part of the challenge. Some people get frustrated with, you know, you, you sure don't want it too dry because then you can't get it to pack. But then, like you said, if it's too wet, uh, you don't get the quality you want either. So the Goldilocks principle here, it's got to be just right. Uh, sometimes that's a pretty narrow window. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, and it is, it is very, very difficult. And especially if you're working with a custom chopper, because then you're trying to time things based off of what you think is going to happen. And like this year, several times we cut in the morning thinking um, that it would be ready in the late afternoon. And nope, it, it wasn't ready yet. And we ended up having to go overnight and try the next morning. So yeah, it's, it's a difficult dance, as, as you mentioned, but I will tell you that based off of the data that I've seen, I'd actually rather go a little bit too dry than, than way too wet. The other thing that you have to remember is when it's really wet and you have that clostridial growth, that silage actually never becomes stable. So it continues to deteriorate. So if you're somebody who is going to put it up this spring and use it this fall, having those bacteria predominating is not what you want because by the time you get to the fall, it really is going to be quite low quality. Um, so I'd rather uh, have it a bit too dry and and have a little bit of trouble trying to get it packed than having it way too wet. So we've talked about spring annuals, thinking here about triticale, rye, wheat, but we also can use some of the summer annuals as silage as well. 
Dr. Wilkie, what are some things to remember about summer annuals, thinking here about primarily sorghum sedan, sedan grass, and the opportunity that they provide to put up a quality silage? You know, they're, they're certainly not going to have the, the grain content that corn silage does, but on the flip side of that, they their seed cost is less, um, they usually require a little less water, and so the the net can be pretty good on that when you factor in the tonnage that you get versus the cost to put in that crop. Um, and they can make some pretty good silages, especially if this is going to be used for, you know, gestating cows to get them through the winter or to mix a feed with some residues and a protein source to add some moisture to the diet. Then the, the summer annuals can be a really nice silage crop because they didn't cost you as much to put up that that cow at maintenance isn't going to be hurting for that energy that the the corn grain in it isn't there that kind of thing and so they can they can provide quite a bit of tonnage let's talk a little bit about the value of packing and getting that pile covered and sealed as you know, I drive around the country and, and I understand the labor that's involved, but I see a lot of times both corn silage and small grain silage piles uh, not being covered. Just talk through with us. If you don't get it packed well and get it sealed, what do we lose there in terms of quantity and quality? Um, and Mary may want to chime in on some of this because I think she's probably done more work on actually measuring that. But, you know, that packing cannot be overemphasized because you can see some piles where the whole time that um, that you're working on getting it packed, somebody's driving on it, somebody's packing on it and you get to the end and we're done and everybody else out in the field is done. And the last guy packing packs a little bit and then, you know, he's done. You, you can sure pick up on that. Um, that loss it can be several inches on the top there, especially if it doesn't get covered. And so I don't, Mary, you probably have actual numbers more so than I do on the actual losses for that. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things to, for people to understand. Um, oxygen is your enemy, right? So and I think we, we've all probably heard that, but we probably don't understand why. And, and the why is that the bacteria and, and fungi that are present when you have oxygen present are actually taking the easily to digest material. So the sugars and the starches and they're degrading them and they're actually eating it and then releasing it as CO2. So you're losing carbon. So you're taking the, the energy that you could be feeding and you're giving it back to the atmosphere. I always say if the silage pile feels hot, you're burning money. And that's exactly what's happening when you don't get the oxygen excluded through packing is that it takes longer to use up the oxygen that's present, which means you have more of that energy loss because you have those bacteria and fungi present utilizing that uh, material because they have the oxygen to do so. So the more you, you pack and the less oxygen you have, the more you preserve. So the best case scenario is the energy content you have when you chop it in the field. Um, what you actually end up with at the end can be a completely different story. So packing's huge for that. Now the covering question, because I know labor is always a challenge, but here's the thing to remember that 
about three feet into the pile, even in a well-packed pile, you're going to have oxygen penetrating from the outside if you do not cover it. That means that uh, depending on the size of your pile, uh, covering it can become even more important. So what I see is a lot of smaller piles, right? Cow-calf guys making some silage and they don't cover it. And the smaller the pile, the more important it is to cover because more of the material is exposed to oxygen and being deteriorated. The other big thing that I think a lot of people underestimate is, you know, that black sludge that you see on the surface? Not only is that telling you how much was lost um, in terms of feeding value, but that material has a bunch of lovely mycotoxins in there that actually can interfere with the rumen. And there's some really interesting data out of Kansas that shows that you feeding that stuff actually brings down the feed value of the whole diet beyond what your nutrient analysis would tell you because it's affecting the other microbes in the rumen. So covering to reduce the amount of that material that you end up feeding, because let's face it, nobody ends up actually pitching that off. Everybody ends up incorporating it into the diet. It can really pay back dividends, not just in how much you preserve, but also in the response that you'll see in the animals. Now, I, I know people do it and they get along um, just fine. Nobody croaks over. Um, and that's true that, that commonly we don't see an issue in terms of an animal actually getting sick from the material, but you can really reduce the feeding value and thus um, you're gonna have to increase the energy content that you're actually providing. Let me ask you a question about covering because you you brought up the point about the labor and then you brought yep. up the point about the smaller cow-calf people that may have a smaller pile. So it's more at risk. And then these are probably also the people that have even more labor shortage because, mm-hmm. you know, they're not a feedlot with several employees. We always think covering has to be a tarp with tires on it. What about um, blowing ground corn stalks or something on top of the pile to help reduce that, you know, that would not be as labor intensive. So you need something that keeps oxygen from penetrating through and blowing uh, a dry material on top is, is not going to really, I mean, it's a porous material. You're going to have oxygen flowing through. Does it decrease it? I have, I don't know. I don't know the answer to how much it would I can tell you that there's definitely data that shows even the difference between an oxygen barrier film versus regular plastic shows payback. Um, So if I think about what a a dry material that I blow on, or even I know some people put like syrup or something on there, like try to create a crust. Um, Actually, Ben Beckman's doing a, a little study this year with that material to see how much it actually does help preserve. But my theory would be that it's it's not nearly the payback that you think it would. If I'm going to use that kind of labor to even do that, I think I would try to figure out a way to put on the plastic. Or uh, maybe this is one of those instances where seeing if you can find a custom bagger makes sense. If I have a small enough pile, I know there's challenges with bagging and getting it fed out in particular, you know, if you don't have a pad. Um, but Sometimes bagging might make sense in terms of how much it can preserve, you know, $9 a a ton to get it bagged might be worth it, especially when feed prices are high, like they're seem to be 
this year and maybe um, next year as well. One of the other things I would just mention is you think about a smaller pile, you also think about how much you feed off and keeping the face of that fresh. I think that presents challenges as well. So once we open the pile, we're opening that silage up to oxygen. And so we are experiencing degradation on the face of that pile if we're not uh, feeding a significant amount off and also keeping that that face uh, dressed, so to speak, keeping it sealed. I guess speak to that a little bit as well as we think about feed out of a small grain silage. Oh, that's an excellent point. Regardless of the silage type, sizing the face is extremely important. And I agree what we see a lot of times is the face is way too big for the amount of material that they need. So, you know, if you're only pulling off an inch or two a day off of the face, then basically you're feeding the stuff that has been deteriorated and you're just exposing the stuff that, that has been less deteriorated to become deteriorated before you feed it the next time. So we tell you in the summer, you know, ideally we'd like at least six inches um, being pulled off every day. And there are calculators that, can help you figure out what the size needs to be. But the other big one, so having too big of a face is is a problem. The other big one is how you pull the material off. If you loosen up the silage pile, because let's say you go and you dig in with the bucket and you and you pick up and pull out some material, now you've created cracks in, in the silage um, that allows more oxygen to penetrate even deeper. And so you'll increase the deterioration. So I always tell you to go go over to the pile and and just feel it like after you fed out, as long as, you know, you don't have an overhanging material. I mean, you know, you got to worry about safety, but you can learn a lot about how things are going just by uh, feeling how hot things are getting. Like the day before you go out and, and pull off material, go and, and stick your hand in there. And if, and if you can start feeling some heat, you know that you're losing stuff. But in the winter, we can get by maybe with three inches um, because you don't get as rapid growth. But in the summer, it's really, really important. In the fall, anytime temperatures are a little bit warmer, having the right face size and making sure you're just shaving off material. So taking the bucket and scraping down and only pulling off what you're going to use that day. Uh, I know some people, uh, for convenience sake, your pile's over here, where I'm mixing is over there. I want to pull off material, take it over there, maybe have three days worth. The stuff that you end up feeding is really different uh, from what it could be. And it's going to be a lot lower quality because you've had those bacteria and fungi growing and, and making use of that. And basically all the good stuff is going to be gone. Well, I think just the things we've talked about, putting up quality silage, getting it packed well, sealed, and then feed out. We can have a really good product, but there's so many things that also can go wrong. And so paying attention to detail is really critical to get a quality product into the cattle we're feeding. Yeah, I do want to say two things about um, the warm season. So like forage sorghum for silage, you know, Carla mentioned doesn't have that grain or it doesn't have as much grain content as corn silage. And we typically say, what is it, Carla, 80 to 90 percent the feeding value of corn silage. Yeah. But one thing I do want to point out is that those kernels for sorghum is the starch that's in there is not readily available. And unless you have a really good seed processing um, and it's really hard to get those broken up, you're likely not going to get much feed value out of them, even if you harvest it soft dough on them. So I think sometimes we 
we overestimate um, how much energy you're actually going to get out of it. Because if you send it in for analysis, it assumes that starch is available. And unless you're actually getting your processor to, to actually get those kernels broken up, they are not going to be much in terms of feed value. And that's why, you know, we mentioned that it's, it's a good cow feed because, you know, that energy level for them is not as critical. We're not doing a um, certain level of gain as much as we're just doing maintenance. And so if that's what a producer's putting silage up to feed, um, then this is an option that may work for them better than the corn silage if the corn ground has all gone to grain corn in a year like this. Yeah. And if you need limited, you need to grow something limited water, it can even make sense for a growing calf diet. You may just need to add some, some grain to the diet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This spring, there was the 2022 silage for beef conference that was held uh, in Lincoln. And also those recordings are available online. Just give us a brief overview of the content cover because so much of what we talked about today is covered more in depth in that conference. Oh yeah. So actually we had we had a talk on agronomic management for, for small grain silages. And, and that was uh, Dr. Darren Redfern. He's our forage agronomist here at UNL. I talked um, more in depth about balancing the quality uh, and the yield for small grains and, and some of the key considerations for making small grain silages. We had Matt Aiken, who is from Wisconsin, and he gave a really great talk on growing sorghum for silage. And he also talked quite a bit about selecting different varieties and different traits on sorghum when you're looking for silage. So talking about using the brachitic or, or dwarf varieties to get more leaf to stem ratio. He talked about dry stock, which is a way to try to get the moisture down a little bit. So maybe you can harvest a little bit earlier. He talked about photosensitive. So there's a lot of different options and he does a really great job of kind of talking through them, the pros and the cons of each. And so you can help you figure out which one you might use if you're looking to use sorghum for silage. We had John Gosher, who is also from Wisconsin and, he, and he's uh, at Rock River Laboratory. And he talked just a lot about, you know, core concepts related to silage management. Some of the things that we talked about today, face management, and some of that. Uh, also how to really understand any analysis that you might get. Becky Arnold, who is from uh, Lollimond, she gave probably one of the easiest to understand talks about silage uh, management that I've heard. And if if there is uh, one talk that you want to listen to, to me, it's her talk because all the things that I'm trying to convince you of in terms of getting it packed, uh, how to pack it right. Like, so things like, you know, making sure you're only putting four to six inches on, making sure that you have the right tractor weight. She really breaks it down into things that you can understand and help you understand why it's so important. And then face management, she also covered uh, very well. We also had probably the world-renowned expert, uh, Lehman Kung. He's from Delaware on inoculants and using inoculants in uh, silages. And so he talked a lot about uh, the benefits of inoculants, how to select the right inoculant, as well as um, inoculant management, because that's another thing. Inoculants are live bugs and um, you can kill them. So how do you make sure that you don't do that uh, so you get your money's worth? 
And then the last talk of the day was about economics and return on investment on basically using uh, forage in grower and finishing rations. And that was Jonas Sarturi from Texas Tech. So there's a lot of great material. It's all on YouTube and, you know, you can pick and choose uh, what you want to listen to. So I really encourage people to go check it out if they're really interested in doing a better job with their silage. And again, that all can be found at the Beef website, and that's the 2022 Silage for Beef Conference. So you go to the website, beef.unl.edu, you can find that all there. Anything else on this topic today, uh, Dr. Janowski, Dr. Wilkie, you want to talk about? I think uh, we probably gave them enough to chew on for the day. Well, I appreciate you both joining me today. Uh, thanks for allowing us to be here. For more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. The title of the article we discussed today, What to Expect from Alternatives to Corn Silage.